It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Lynn, what's new in the area of retirement planning? Well, Doug, um, you know, there are some common misconceptions about IRAs, aren't there? There really are, Linda. A lot of people don't understand things about IRAs. And uh, since IRAs often represent a significant portion of a retiree's net worth, many planning opportunities are available to the informed if such uh, answers can be got. Now, the first misconception that people have, it seems to me, is that minimum distribution decisions must be made when the IRA owner reaches 70 and a half years old. But actually, that's not true. The required distribution date, the beginning date, is not age 70 and a half, Lynn. It's actually April 1 of the calendar year after you turn 70 and a half. Now, what are the required minimum distributions based on? Well, they're going to be based on either the joint life expectancy of yourself, if it's your IRA, and your spouse or whoever the designated beneficiary is going to be uh, as of the time of that beginning date. If there is no designated beneficiary, uh, then the distributions can be based on a single life as if it was just you. Now, there is a second misconception that some folks have about IRAs as individual retirement accounts is that you cannot change. Some people think that you cannot change the beneficiary of an IRA after the required beginning date. Is that true? Yeah, you're right, Lynn. That is a misconception. The beneficiary of an IRA actually can be changed anytime you want while the IRA owner is alive. It's the payout method that gets locked in, not the beneficiary. And that payout method gets locked in at the required beginning date. Now, the key to remember here is that if the beneficiary is changed after the retired required beginning date, then the minimum required distributions may need to be increased, but they're never allowed to be decreased. Now, this is a misconception here. Um, if the IRA owner dies after his or her required beginning date with a spouse named as beneficiary, then the spouse is locked into the minimum distribution schedule of the IRA owner. Is that is that a misconception? Yeah, that's another mistake that people hold. They think that once you've set up your uh, minimum distribution and it's locked in and uh, you're married, that if one spouse dies, that lock-in minimum payment has to be continued to the next, to their surviving spouse. And that's not so. At the IRA owner's death, the spouse can then treat the IRA as if it were his or her own IRA. 
and do what we call a spousal rollover and just roll the money over into her IRA. And then she has the choice of naming a new beneficiary and calculating new minimum distributions just as if she was the account owner herself in the beginning. So uh, a lot of people are confused about what has to happen with those minimum distributions on IRAs at death. You can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is 919-USA-7000. That's 919-872-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. A fourth misconception is uh, that naming a charity or a charitable remainder trust as partial beneficiary of an IRA may be a wise planning decision. Is that true? Well, if you do, it may be a terrible planning mistake to really do something like that because when calculating the minimum distributions from an IRA that has multiple beneficiaries, uh, the IRS looks for you to look at the worst-case beneficiary for determining life expectancy. And since a charity is not a person, that's going to be the worst case because the charity doesn't have a life expectancy, and so it's going to bump back to single life. Now, uh, there's a solution. There's actually a couple of solutions to this problem. One solution is you can go ahead and break your IRA into a couple of IRAs and then let one IRA, if you want part of it to go to a charity, let part of it go that way. Another way is to use a charitable remainder trust. And I like this one a lot, Linda. I do this a number of times in my, in, 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 uh, with my clients where we set up a charitable remainder trust as the beneficiary of the IRA. Now, this is definitely a sophisticated strategy, isn't it? Oh, yeah. This is You don't try this one on your own. That's like brain surgery. You, you, you don't do this one on your own. But it works in a wonderful way if you can run the numbers and if you see what's happening there. Okay, Doug. There, uh, now, a fifth misconception is that IRAs invested in mutual funds and CDs are an excellent liquid asset for paying estate taxes. Is that a misconception? That's another one of those big no, 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 wrong, wrong answer that people have about IRAs. IRAs that are left intact at death can continue to grow and grow for decades. In fact, with proper planning, a large IRA can provide for the owner and the spouse during their lives and then later provide for the IRA's owner's children during their lifetimes. And if you would like any other information, you can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is 919 919- USA 7000, that's 919-872-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. Well, Ken, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Yes, um, I have two IRAs. I'm planning to switch into something because it's with the bank and it's drawing practically nothing in income. And I've had a couple of calls, and uh, they are offering uh, no-load mutual funds at about 15.6. I don't see why I shouldn't go with them, and they have a good track record. How do you mean at 15.6? Well, uh, they tell me that that's a net income. I see. Well, you know something, Ken? What? I think that's a wonderful deal. You're telling me that you can go ahead and get something absolutely for free, pay no commission, and get a guaranteed 15% income. That's what they say. Uh Uh-huh. If you look at it carefully, you'll see that they're defining what they call total return, and that's not income. The agent said that the track record for the last five years was about 18. All right, he's talking about how much the money has grown. That's the total return, not how much dividend or interest it's paying. Let's think of chickens and eggs, okay? Okay. All right. You can go ahead and get five chickens, all right? Yeah. Now, let's, and those chickens, if they're going to lay an egg a day, how many eggs are you going to get? 
five a day. You got five eggs, right? On the other hand, if you feed those chickens a lot of feed and they actually gain on you a couple of extra pounds. Yeah. Okay. Their growth in weight, they're getting fatter and fatter. They might have gained 10% in weight, which means if you kill that chicken, you can have more meat on the table. On the other hand, the eggs haven't changed, have they? Right. You've still got five eggs. Yeah. What you're looking at, those numbers are talking about combining the eggs and the chicken meat, slaughtering the chicken, and then looking at how much it all sits on your plate. Well, why do they mislead you like that? Well, here's your real question. The real question is not how come they mislead, but how come they don't educate me more? You have not been adequately educated, and you need to be adequately educated, and you need to be educated as to the risks and the returns. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000. How much is in the IRAs? Yeah, how much do you have? What's your investment portfolio look like? Oh, about 25000 in that, but uh, I have real estate. No, that's not a liquid investment. What do you have in the way of liquid investments? A bunch of stocks and bonds and stuff. How much do you have in stocks and bonds? Oh, I don't know. My wife says I'm worth over a million, but uh, I don't think so. Well... Yeah, but you mean now? There's another problem. If you don't know how much you have in stocks and bonds, then you should be shame on you. You should know what you've got. I don't really care. I got enough to live until I die. Well, you see, now what you're doing when you portray a picture of yourself like that to that guy on the other phone, on the other end of the phone, I can see what he's thinking. He's thinking, boy, I got a sucker here. There is a proper way to approach your world, and the proper way is to go ahead and do what we call an asset allocation model. An asset allocation model first looks at the total amount that the client has to work with. Then, what are the living expense needs of the client? What's the age? What's the income, etc.? Then, to go ahead and break down into a certain amount of money in each type of investment. If a person has $500,000, then we might put no more than, say, 40000 or 50000 in any one. If they only have 200000 we put maybe no more than 20000 in any one. And then that one that we're talking about would probably be a pool of money, managed monies. Mutual funds are ideal. But then we come to what kind of mutual funds? And for a person 76 years old, I'd be very hesitant about putting you into aggressive mutual funds. And especially if the person asked me for a a quotation on net yield of how much it's paying, then I know what he's asking me for is income. Yeah. You should really know what you're doing. You should have the comfort and the confidence that the planner you're working with is educating you as to what each piece of your portfolio is. If you're not getting that education, then something's missing. If you, I think you need a financial planner, Ken. I think you need someone that can help you look at your whole situation because otherwise you're just going to be taken in with salespeople. If you would like some more information, you can call me at the office. Yes. And the number is 872-7000. 872-7000. Yes, sir. And we're here in Raleigh, All and right. I'll be happy to give you some more information or take down your questions. All right. And then, you know, if if you would like, you can gather your information together, and Doug can analyze all of this for you and yeah. give you some specific advice. All right. Okay, and thanks for calling. Thanks. Well, Doug, let's go over those five mistakes that a person might be making. Well, the first mistake that average Joe America 
could be making is not getting a second opinion on the 401k that you've got at work. Is that usually because you feel like um, you're sort of stuck and don't have anywhere else to go? Or why is that, a, that advice good? Well, I think too many clients just follow the conventional wisdom of contributing the maximum to their 401k. They never consider if this is the best move for their financial situation. An investor's 401k could be charging excessive fees. There may be a matching portion. There may not be a matching portion. They may have lousy investment choices or excellent investment choices. All of these things are going to affect whether you're doing the right thing with your 401k. So the first mistake that most people are making is they are not getting a second opinion on their 401k. So uh, just getting a second opinion on your investment strategy, on your matching, on your contributions, and the particular investments inside? Right. All three aspects. How much to contribute, whether I'm contributing uh, too much or too little, what investment selections inside, and how do I factor in the matching portion? And I agree with you, Doug. It's important to revisit what are the choices that you've made there and whether or not the decisions that you've made early on, because usually when a person gets a new job and they have to sign up, you know, once they're eligible to participate in the 401k, they may make those uh, decisions without having proper advice as to whether or not those are the proper decisions that should be made right. and leave in their that, situation, right? Right, and leave it like that untouched for years. And, a lot and of when people I, and do it. They, they do, and that's the, biggest, that's the biggest mistake. They don't get a continuing opinion of are they doing it right or wrong. I shocked somebody last week, I think it was, when I told him the biggest mistake he's made in the last five years was he's been contributing to his 401k. And he said, why? I've been doing the maximum. I said, the biggest mistake you've made is you should have been contributing zero. He was just shocked. But in his particular situation, he should not have been contributing a penny. And why is that, Doug? Well, because all of that money was going into a 401k, and he was looking towards early retirement. He had accumulated nothing outside of his 401k. So as soon as he retires early, under 59 and a half, he's going to want to roll that money into an IRA and start living off it and be facing almost 50% in taxes by the time he pays federal, state, and 10% penalty, whereas he should have been putting the same dollar amount over into a non-401k. A lot of people think 401ks are tax avoidance uh, strategies. They're not. They're just tax deferrals. So he was hurting himself really bad. But anyway, that's the first big mistake, not getting a second opinion on the 401k. And the and in regard to financial plans themselves, isn't this another big decision that most people do avoid or they make the mistake of just not making or writing a financial plan down? Yeah, having no plan is the next mistake that people make. Not having a plan at all. No financial plan means that all your family, all your financial decisions for the family are random. And living for the moment, it feels good. Making decisions on the fly, that is a recipe for disaster later on. And they should have a plan. You, of course, that's our profession. We know everyone should have a plan. But the majority of people have no plan. And usually if you if you stay in that mode, a lifetime of doing so often results in insufficient savings and an over-leveraged lifestyle, which so many people have 
have suffered Eventu- the consequences. That's exactly right, Linda. Eventually, you realize it's too late. It's too late. I wish I had gotten a plan started when I was in my 30s, and now uh, I'm in trouble. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000. The third mistake people make after not getting a second opinion on their 401k, not having any plan, right, is refusing when they get advice to scale back when they're early, when they're approaching retirement. You know, a lot of folks, as they, as, as they get the information from a planner, they start to realize, oh, I better cut back on my living expenses. I better hold back because I, if not, I might have to work a lot longer than I factored in. And the, uh, the willingness to scale back is a big uh, or the lack of willingness to scale back is a big mistake. Well, when you're young, um, you think about it, and, and that's why people, you know, will contribute to a 401k or save, but maybe not save not not enough because they're thinking, well, I'm young, I'm enjoying, I have little kids, I have so many expenses. But when you get older, then the rubber hits the road, right? And I think that's when, the, if you haven't scaled back your spending, when there's no income, and then you have no choice but to get cut back later on, that's when it really hurts. It does. And so you've got to make the... You, yeah, you, you, yeah. You lose the option as to when you're going to cut back. Eventually, you'll have to cut back if you haven't already. You know, there's an example in this article um, where a couple, the financial planner encouraged this couple to downsize their home and to boost their savings. Um, and this was essential to their financial plan. Well, now the couple's 67, and the, and the wife is 66, and they wish to retire in three years. But they have yet to cut back. So, you know, part of the problem is people just essentially don't feel the urgency. And then what happens? Well, that's a mistake, isn't it, Doug? Well, yes, yeah, suppose you lose your job. You fact, you've all, your, your parachute was, well, I'll just have to work a few extra years. But suppose you lose your job and you can't work another few years, then you've got a crisis facing you, and in retirement, you are having severe cutbacks. Now, the fourth mistake, which we see a lot of people make through the years, is sacrificing their retirement to pay for kids' college. That's a big, big no-no. You've got to think of yourself first, and I... Uh, I don't know how many times I've been the bad guy telling clients, no, don't sacrifice your retirement by paying for your kid's college. There are ways to approach it, but get help professionally from a certified financial planner and don't sacrifice your own retirement. And I guess the fifth mistake is the simplest one, just thinking you're going to live forever and not having any insurance to cover until you're financially independent. Uh, just not being uh, insured is a huge mistake. You can get cheap term insurance just to cover you. So those, I think, are the five mistakes that people may be making, probably are making. No second opinion on the 401k, no financial plan, refusing to scale back, sacrificing retirement for kids' college, and thinking you're going to live forever 
and having no insurance to protect your wife if you die. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. John, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, Doug, uh, I have some land that's highly appreciated that we're probably selling uh, in the next uh, short time, year or so. And I wonder if you would discuss uh, charitable remainder trust, uh, the pros and cons of, of putting that land in something like that. I'll be happy to. Just give me a, a couple of the specifics. Uh, John, uh, first of all, how old are you? I'm 59. 59 years old. And are you married or single? Married. Yes. Married. Do you have children? Yes, I do. Two. Two children. Approximately, what's the value of your estate? Well, uh, the land that we'll be selling will be approximately $750,000. All right. The land itself is $750,000. By the way, is the land owned individually by you or jointly you and your wife or by a corporation? Jointly. All right. Jointly with rights of survivorship. What about the rest of your estate? What's the total of your combined estate? Uh, Well, we have some other land that uh, we have a one-third interest in that uh, we'll not be selling right now, but later on. How interesting that would be, approximately uh, 200000 We have a house and lot that's probably uh, another 200000 All right. And, of course, then now what about your investment portfolio and retirement plans? Zero. All right. No personal investments, no retirement plans. Not, none to speak of. Very low amount. All right. So we're looking at just about pretty close to a million two in total estate before we do anything. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the basis? the basis for the listener's edification, if you already know, John, the basis is what you paid originally for the land that you want to sell. Well, this came to me to my family uh, as a gift, and it was in the family a long, long time, so it has a very low basis. All right. Now, again, for the edification of our listeners, you may already know this, John. If you received it through your family by inheritance, that's one basis. If you received it by gift, that's another basis. The part that we are selling was by gift. All right. That's the, the worst one. <laughs> the remainder that we be selling later was inherited. All right. The basis is what the original purchaser paid for it, and if it was given to you, then that basis carries over from the giver to you. I realize that. That's why I said about right. So you would say what we're talking about maybe just a negligible amount, ten or twenty thousand dollars. It probably was worth uh, fifty dollars an acre at the time. And how many acres? Uh, Thirty-four. Thirty-four acres. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a very low basis. Have you made any improvements on the property at all? No. Okay. All right. So maybe we've got, let's say, $5,000 of basis, if you will, and $750,000 of value. So if you go ahead and you sold it for $750,000 and you had to subtract the $5,000, you'd end up with $745,000 of capital gain to report. So you'd have about $186,000 that you'd have to pay in taxes. You'd end up with about $564,000. That's choice number one. And of course, the purpose, since you have no investment portfolio, the purpose would be to go ahead and to move that into funds that would produce a retirement income for you and your wife. Is that correct? Correct. All right. So we can say in today's market at about a 7% current yield, you might end up with about $39,000 of income per year on that $564,000 portfolio after you'd paid the taxes. In comes the solution, the charitable remainder unit trust. Our number in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Now, the Charitable Remainder Unit Trust is the most exciting and the most sophisticated, the most dynamic, and the most flexible financial planning tool available today. 
but it is fraught with a lot of caveats. So you really need to know how to do it right or you don't end up with what you want. First of all, let's think of it conceptually, John. You can go ahead and establish a trust. The box. Right. It's like a box. That's right, Linda. It's just like a box. We set up a box. Okay. It's got nothing in it. It's just a piece of paper that says that such and such a trust is created. And then you write the instructions. For John and his wife. Right. Yeah. We set the, we put a set of instructions in this box, in this trust that says the trustee, that's the one who runs this trust, will do the following things. Now we have to remember who are the entities involved here. First, we have the donor. Donor would be you and your wife. The donor is the one who gives something to this trust. All right, so you, the donor, are going to give the deed of this property to this trust. And there'll be a set of instructions that you put in this trust. The trust is also going to have a set of instructions that says, after you and your wife die, what's left in this trust will go to some nonprofit organization. It could be the uh, John and Nancy uh, um, uh, nonprofit foundation for the benefit of uh, underprivileged children. It could be for the church. It could be any type of nonprofit, could be university and so forth. But because one day, long time down the road, after you and your wife have died, because you will be making a gift, Uncle Sam considers that any sales occurring inside this trust are tax free just as if it was the charity itself making them today. So, Doug, essentially what you're saying is that we would take uh, possibly John's 34 acres and put that into the trust. That's right. right. That's Transfer right. that out of John and his wife's estate right. and put that in the box, right. he in the de- trust. He deeds it over to the trust. Exactly. And he is making what's called a split interest gift. He is gifting down the road a future interest and a remainder interest. If we think in terms of chickens and eggs, chickens being the principal, eggs being the income, what comes off of the chickens, he's saying, I would like to give away my chickens, but not until after I and my wife have died. I'll keep all the eggs for the rest of our lifetime. This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000. John, are you currently employed? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. And and when are you thinking of retiring? Uh, maybe five years. Okay. Well, that works beautifully because yeah, we have excellent. five years. Yeah. Yes. Okay, let's go one step further now. He says in his trust document that he will keep, you, John, will keep all of the income that's generated inside this trust. And you're agreeing to give away the remainder after you and your wife have died. Okay? Any problems so far? No, I understand that. All right. Now, Because it's a future interest going to a charitable institution, the entire land worth $750,000 inside the trust can be sold to your buyer for $750,000. Now we've got $750,000 of cash and no taxes to pay, and it's inside the trust. And we go ahead, even if we invest that at the same 7%, we've now got $53,000 a year income coming to you and your wife instead of $39,000 a year income doing it the other way. Now, the key is who runs the show? Who is the trustee? The trustee should be you. You want to make sure that you are the trustee. If you do it through one of the universities here in town or uh, the Cancer Foundation or any charity you want, they will offer you the same arrangement, but they say we will be the trustee. 
And that type of charitable remainder trust I do not like because obviously you've got a long time for you and your wife to live and you want to be controlling the investments that happen inside the trust with the $750,000, right? Right. All right. So now what we've done, we've preserved principle. So we've got a much bigger income stream coming to you. Okay. Now the question of course comes, what happens after the two of you die? After the two of you die, then the principal, whatever's left in this charitable trust, will go to any a nonprofit institution, charity, or it can go to a foundation which can be directed by your children. But the principal will not go directly to your children. So in effect, this may or may not be a concern to you, but in effect, this portion has been, you have disinherited your children of this amount. In my case, it is a big concern. All right, it's a big concern. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what we want to do next is we want to go ahead and we want to establish a second trust that's called the Wealth Replacement Trust that replaces the wealth that you have moved from your estate. And what you do there, of course, if you're going to put in $750,000 of property into your trust, then you want to buy, you want to set up another trust that owns a $750,000 life insurance policy. Now, this life insurance policy should be a second-to-die policy. The second-to-die policies are cheaper than buying it individually. Which means that at the time that after you and your wife have passed away, when your children would have received the estate, instead of getting what's in the trust, the first trust, they get the $750,000 insurance that's in the second trust. Because you are uh, making a future gift, you get a tax deduction today. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. Where you could easily accumulate two, three, four, five million dollars during your lifetime in this charitable trust, have a larger and larger income stream coming out of it, and be able to lump dip in and take out very large hunks to turn around and gift to your children. You use a small amount of that income to pay for the premium over in the insurance policy, so it's cost you nothing. Do you have any idea what a what a annual uh, rate would be on that insurance policy? I would really have to go ahead and, and, and look at some tables. It would not be that expensive. We would want to shop around. Whenever I do these, I always look for the cheapest I can get for a client because the goal is really not to build up a lot of cash value in an insurance policy like this, right? Right. The goal is really to pass $750,000 to my kids after my wife and I die, but to give us a bigger and bigger retirement plan inside. Right. Then, of course, the whole key is be your own trustee, work with an investment advisor who is an expert because you and he together will be handling all the monies inside of this thing and you can have a win-win-win situation. And then after you've died, You'd like it very possibly to go to a charitable foundation where it can continue to live forever, the foundation's money, and just the income from that can be sprinkled and your children can be, you know, advising, give to this charity, give to this charity, give to that charity and so forth. And they also got their whole inheritance. The equation is easy enough, right, Doug? It works, but you have to you have to work with someone that's qualified and able to help you run the numbers and oversee. And you need an administrator. Exactly. An administrator who will go ahead and administer a self-trusted trust. John, if you would like some more information on this, Mm -hmm. I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further. And you can call me at the office here in Raleigh. And the number is 872-7000. 
That's USA 7000, and I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. All right. I appreciate it. I'll, All right. I'll be getting in touch. Have I answered everything for this evening, uh, John? Yes, yes. I just wanted to uh, about what you, what you gave, and I'd like to talk to you further about it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for calling, John. Bye-bye now. Doug, there are some estate planning issues that do need to be dealt with in a person's situation. Yeah, I think very few people pay attention to what happens to their estate. And the first question that everybody has to deal with is, do I need a will or do I need a living trust? Well, Doug, both a a will and a living trust can be used to transfer assets, right? That's right. But but each of them also has other unique uses as well. And that's exactly right. The will, for example, aside from what happens after you die with your assets, the will can name guardians for the children who are minors. A will can even create a trust that begins at death. So these are decisions and uh, that can be in a will that have nothing to do with transferring the assets. On the side of the living trust, the, uh, the trust can hold assets while you're alive. And that's important in the event of dementia or incapacitation. So the uses other than what happens to your assets after you die differ very much in a will and in a living trust. Now, when does when does it take effect? Which one? If you have a will, when does it take effect? Well, I think that's easy, Deborah. When does a will take effect? Not until death. That's right. When you die, that's when a will begins uh, its existence. But a trust, on the other hand, a living trust takes effect the day you sign it while you're alive. And that's really useful because of things that it can do during your lifetime. Exactly. And also at your death. Oh, of Both course. Because your instructions. That's right. right. That's exactly right. Are, are detailed in the revocable living trust. The matter of privacy differs in the two of them. A will is a private, a will is a non-private. It's a public document. So it's open to the public. But a trust is private. Nobody sees a trust. But a will, everyone sees. So when I die and I have a will, my will can become part of the public record. Exactly. If I die and I have a trust, my trust is a private document and no one gets to read what I owned at my death. Is that's, that correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Very nice right. for privacy. It is. Um, especially for people who are concerned. A lot of men I know are concerned that if their widow, their wife is widowed, that they don't want... Uh, there are a lot of people out there that prey upon... Uh, uh, widows who have been uh, who have received an inheritance and they don't want their wife's assets how much they inherited to be seen by the public. I heard one say it's like vultures on on roadkill (laughs) (laughs) and that's what you don't want is someone calling and harassing your wife or widower uh, or you know your spouse that you you leave. This is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. I've heard some very painful stories. Yeah, You're right, yeah, Deborah. You know, yeah. Hard. Yeah. I think for, for well, it's already hard enough to be grieving and then to be worried. That's right. They have phone, you yeah, phone call, yeah, have phone yeah. calls. You're in the middle of grieving and people are badgering <laughs> right. you with phone See, calls because they read it in the newspaper. Sell right. you uh and Some you can product. protect your, your special right. other person by providing these things while you're alive. You know, part of the reason I think some people procrastinate is because it is an emotional thing to deter, to decide what do I want to happen when if I, I die, die right. or if I get in an accident. Mm-hmm. So you look at a worst case scenario when you're 
doing financial planning, and this is, of course, one of the aspects, but it is an emotional thing because if and you you're need- choosing guardians for your, your little children, who's, who's the most competent person to take care of them if you die? And you need help. You need help deciding. Right. Should it be a will or should it be a trust? Well, if you want to set up a will, how do you do that? Well, setting up a will in many states is very uh, formal and and state by state has different regulations. Virginia has one set of regulations. North Carolina has another and so forth. But there are certain legal formalities and uh, some states will honor a handwritten will. Some will not. But a living trust is so easy. Just a signature is all that's necessary for the living trust. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be notarized. So very different between setting up a will and setting up a trust. Now, the steps that are necessary if a person dies, uh, if you have a will, what do they do? Well, then you go to court. You got to go to the clerk of court's office. You got to submit the will for probate. But if you have a trust, probate's not necessary at all. Uh, there is no probate necessary with the trust. And who is the person that distributes the property at a person's death? In the if case you have a will. In the case of a will, that person is called the executor. In the case of a trust, it's the trustee. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to set up an appointment to speak about your situation. 919-872-7000. And in a living trust, don't you frequently recommend that you be your own trustee? I think so. I think uh, um, in 95% of the cases that I have done through the years, I've all, I have recommended that you be your own trustee during your lifetime or until you become incapacitated. Where you could name a successor trustee. And in your document, you say, if I am incapacitated or incompetent, then my successor trustee will be, and very often it's a spouse or a child. Okay. Very good. You know, there was a CBS News correspondent named Charles Corot, who back in the 90s, he was a well-known anchor. He died, and his story uh, was very sad because he didn't take care of these estate issues during his lifetime. And if he had taken care of them, he could have saved a lot of heartache to his loved ones and legal expenses. He could have either used a will or a living trust because what happened was he had a secret girlfriend for 29 years. Her name was Patricia Elizabeth Shannon. And this all became public. But among other things that might have been avoided, there was a six-year court battle between Ms. Shannon and Carl's family. Shannon claimed, she claimed that he had left her 90 acres and an old schoolhouse near the Montana retreat where he and she had spent a lot of time through the years. But his will said he left everything to his family. So during the course of the lawsuit, uh, details of this relationship came to the surface and of course, quite a surprise to his wife. Who knew nothing. <laughs> who knew nothing. And it all spilled into the court papers, but... Um, 
It was terrible because his daughter is also. Yeah, a lot of suffering here. A lot of suffering. But this is a prime example of what happens if you don't have estate planning documents drawn up. So what was the outcome of the case? Well, what happened was that Shannon came up with a handwritten note that Kuralt had sent her some weeks before he died. And he said in this handwritten note that he was going to give her the land. And then, of course, when he died, the court had to rule because there was the will and there was this handwritten note. The court actually ruled in Shannon's favor. It said that uh, she got the land, even though it was unclear whether the note was a valid amendment to his will or not. And so uh, she got the land. But the worst part of the whole deal was that after the court gave her the land, which was about $600,000, there were several more rounds of legal battles over who had to pay the taxes on the land. And lo and behold, the Montana Supreme Court said that the taxes had to come out of his estate. So his daughters ended up paying the taxes and Shannon got the property and all of this mess. Oh, worst of all, his wife died in the middle of the whole mess that was happening in court. And all of this was in the papers and everything. It all could have been avoided if he had had a living trust or a will. So long and the short of it is don't delay. Wow. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. Let's take another caller. Yo, is that you? Yes. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Good afternoon, sir. I am 45 and for various circumstances in my life, I was not able to start saving for retirement until about three years ago. I'd like to know what can I do to maximize the amount that I can generate for retirement while still maintaining a, a reasonable degree of safety for my fund. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Gil. How You say you're 45 years old? I'm 45. You married or single? I'm married, three small children. What's your income, Gil? About 150. All right, so you're making 150, and is your wife working? No. All right, so that's the only income. Do you know what your living expenses are? Um, roughly about $6,000 a month. All right. So you're spending about 6000 a month at 72000 a year. Um, let me ask you this now. What have you accumulated so far in the way of personal investments? Uh, we've got some money in, in uh, mutual funds, about 25000 or so. 25000 and, and which funds are you in or what kind of funds are they? Uh, we've got about half and half. One is a, one is, one is a growth in income and the other is a short-term bond. All right. Um, at your age, you don't want to be in a short-term bond fund for sure. What about um, retirement plans, Gil? Uh, have you, do you have a retirement plan? I do not have anything else. I do uh, not have any. Okay. Uh, I can understand why you're concerned. What you need, because you're right, uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty tough. How old are your kids? Four, three, and uh, 20 months. All right. So you've got, yeah, you've got a tough situation what you should do but the good thing is you've got a decent income yeah um what you need to do uh is number one you need to do a living expense analysis before anything else okay uh you need to set up an appointment to meet with a certified financial planner and have a living expense analysis done so we can find out something that's called the net margin that number at the office by the way is 919 
the net margin is the most crucial piece of the picture because we need to get your income minus your expenses to find out what you have available. Then that number, whatever it is, uh, you know, if that number is 5,000 a month, then that's good because 5,000 a month then would be able to go into uh, a particular investment program. If it's only 2,000 a month or whatever, then, then we need to go ahead and, and use an asset allocation model to determine where to go. Now, it's a, it's a delicate balance in terms of selecting the vehicles, but for sure, I think you could be in either growth and income funds or growth funds or international funds. There's no reason that you should be in bond funds if you're trying to go ahead and catch up, even though you're 45 years old. Besides, if you got a newborn baby or a little one, you know you're working for the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. All right. So with a 20-year time frame in front of you, you could go ahead and do that. The bottom line has to be to start with the dollar amount and then start figuring what vehicles, whether they be the internationals, the growth funds, or the growth and in incomes, will meet the need. We have to get the living expenses today. We've got to inflate them to the target date that we want. And if it's a 20-year period, that's good. If it's a 10-year period, that's, you know, that's what we got to use. Right. And then work backwards and see if we can go ahead and meet it with one of those three or one of those four types of vehicles. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Doug, you know, retirement planning is is what what everyone is planning for when they're working, right? I mean, that's that's uh, the whole point of why we're the doing whole point this. of why we're doing this <laughs> day in and day out, working so that one day you can retire. But isn't it important to look at what what happens along the way? To, to secure your financial planning future? Well, I would even say it's probably divided into two parts, that retirement planning is divided into two parts. There is before and after a person enters retirement. And that that's very good, Deborah, because there have been a lot of approaches on how to analyze uh, a lot of fallacies also, uh, a lot of misconceptions and myths about the different stages, the before and after stages of retirement. But recent research has uncovered a basic flaw in previous retirement planning models, and that was that the assumption that all your living expenses in retirement would go ahead and be less than after retirement. Well, that's not so. And they have discovered that. The misconception underestimates other things that actually go up, like health care, vacation, and leisure. How many of our clients have we heard who, at last, after 25 years, I'm now retiring, and the first thing they talk about after in the first year is to do what? Take a big trip. Take a big trip. And vacation in previous years might have been $2,000, $3,000, and now suddenly we have $20,000 for uh, a large cruise or two cruises, which is wonderful. But the assumption that expenses are going to go down has, at last, according to some of the models that I've seen, been exposed as a fallacy. Uh, Another big mistake was bundling all retirement expenses together without regarding how they change during retirement. You know, I've seen a lot of the software programs, which I think are sort of nonsense to me. They take your total expenses and then either they put an inflation factor on it And it goes like that. But some expenses don't inflate and some do. 
you've got to take each expense line by line. An example, one example of, a, of an expense that's not going to inflate. A mortgage payment. A mortgage payment. It's going to stay the same. What's an example of, an, of, a, of one that you better factor in uh, inflation through your years? Yeah. Food. 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 Uh-huh. Food. Clothing. Medical. Uh, medical. I mean, all these have to be treated on a line-by-line basis. The concept that people, however, need to embrace right now, I think is wonderful. It's the millionaire next door concept, where you spend less than you earn and you're rewarded for it later in life. In that approach, we then go ahead and say, all right, this is in the pre-retirement stage, okay, that I need to analyze my expenses, spend Less so I can save more, so I can enjoy more later, and then factor in the uh, you know the worst case. I'm going to live. Well, I shouldn't say it's the worst case, but I'm going to live a lot longer than what the tables say. Maybe I'll live longer than 80. Maybe I'll live to 97 and so forth. And I don't want to have to be reducing my lifestyle. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000. The, the research, however, that came out was very good that, that the models have to be looked at differently. And I have to say, and I'm proud to say, that through the years, we've never used those models. In our firm, we have always done exactly what this is finally showing that line by line, item by item, you have to analyze and so forth. And don't assume uh, that things are going to be cheaper or less when you retire. But the one thing that I didn't like out of the research was that divide your, 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 your expenses into buckets and advise and, and, and break out certain needs for this kind of in this bucket they I think one of them said active retirement maybe from age 60 to 75 you'll have certain needs there so use a certain number there and passive retirement uh, from say age 75 to 85 when your travel and your vacation is going to drop off and health issues and frail retirement you're after 80 age I don't like that that conclusion of the research was to me was fallacious was was false uh, I didn't like it at all because I have too many cases of clients that are active and strong all the way until their late 80s, 80s yes, and indeed. others who are very frail in their late 60s. So uh, I didn't like the bucket approach, but I did like the idea of looking at the expenses themselves and taking them on a line-by-line basis. You know, Doug, that's why I appreciate over these years as we have worked with our clients and they're wonderful folks and um, it is important that people address financial planning and work with a competent advisor that can help them look at these expenses and plan not only for your current needs, but also for your future need in retirement. Because as we said earlier from one of the other articles that we looked at, that a lot of folks, they miss the boat because they didn't plan when they were younger. And then when they get to be in their 60s, they don't have enough money. Or because they spend all their time sending their kids to Ivy League schools and, oh, the sigh of relief that the kids are finally out of the house and finally out of college and they're the ones stuck with the debt and not enough to live 
to pay for their expenses. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. There is a lot of static going out across the airwaves these days saying, be debt-free, be debt-free, owe nothing, get your mortgage paid off. And you hear a lot of these Ray, Ray, Ray radio people, unfortunately, they're saying the goal is to get your debts paid off and be debt-free. And that is just, I mean, it's nonsense to think of that. Have you ever considered that the homeless guy living under the bridge has no mortgage payment to worry about? <laughs> So that's not the the goal isn't to be debt free of your mortgage. It's 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 aiming at the wrong target. The goal is to be financially independent to where your debt payments are meaningless to you. I agree. <laughs> because there is a lot of hype about being debt free. And yes, it's good not to have debt. But if you have a home, uh your home is a use asset. Correct. It is not an investment. That's right. It is an asset that you use. And on the one hand, there are some folks out there that shouldn't be buying a home because they really can't afford it. They think, oh, well, the payments are low, but they don't think about that debt that they're going to have on their shoulders. And if something happens and something breaks down, it's their problem, right? But if you go in to purchasing a home and you have a job and you're making a substantial income then you should look at what are you saving right that's the whole and not goal. just some people want to pay double payments I don't I, I don't mind having clients that have no mortgages as a matter of fact I think uh, probably two-thirds or more of our clients in retirement have no mortgages. My point is that the target, the goal is not to see how fast I can get the mortgage paid off. It should be how fast I can accumulate my investments so that I'm financially independent. I think this is a great example of where one piece of advice tend, can tend to, uh, like you always say, a tax tail wagging a dog when people will sometimes make a decision for a tax reason and it doesn't benefit them and right. it might hold them back. Well, this might be another thing to where you go to, uh, you, you go into something, oh, it'd be great to be debt free. That's true, but at the expense of not accumulating or using those years that you have to accumulate unwisely, then you haven't accomplished anything. Very well said, Deborah. Well said, Debs. And, and that segues into probably the last thing I want to mention tonight about also bad advice by looking only at one thing. You know, ETFs, if I can switch subjects quickly. Sure. ETFs are very, very popular, but there was a great Wall Street Journal article that came out pointing out the article was entitled Going Passive Aggressively. I don't know if anybody saw it. Did y'all see that article? Certainly did. It was really good because it pointed out that uh, some advisors are building portfolios on ETFs on the basis of the fact they're supposed to carry lower cost. But the whole article was designed to show that that's exactly wrong. By the time you go ahead and add on the layers of fees, mutual funds are far less expensive in, in most cases than the ETFs. 
Now, an ETF, is it going to be actively or passively managed? Is it going to be more like an index fund to where there's not a manager and it just sort of follows something? Yeah, it trades on. It's like a mutual fund that trades on the stock exchange uh, like a stock. And then, of course, the person who is investing the ETFs for you, he's usually going to go ahead and uh, hand your money over to a money manager who does a pool of ETFs, like a pool of stocks. So you got a second set of fees there. That sounds like a second layer of fees. And then you got another 1% for his portion. You can usually end up paying 2%. Wow, and you didn't save yourself any money. It cost yourself. Better to save with the mutual funds. I like the article. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.